Summer grilling season is in full swing, even with the shadow of COVID-19 putting something of a damper on spirits and the size of backyard gatherings. But for the pork industry, as consumers fire up the grill, it's a chance for packers, processors, and producers to work through a backlog of hogs created by plant closures necessitated by the spread of the novel coronavirus. Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we talk with one of the industry's leading young meat scientists about his perspective on the current state of the industry, how the industry is communicating with consumers about issues of pork quality, and just for fun, what he's throwing on the old Weber this summer in the middle of that grilling season I mentioned a moment ago. Well, this episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Topics Norsven USA. Topics Norsven is the second largest swine genetics company in the world. Topics Norsven's unique breeding program is designed to accelerate genetic progress at the customer level by creating innovative products and solutions that benefit the entire pork production chain. To get more information, visit topicsnorsven.us. Dustin Bowler, originally from Spencer, Indiana, is a meat scientist with Topics Norsven, known for his experience with pork quality, growth-promoting technologies in meat animals, and contemporary issues facing the meat industry. He's worked with pharmaceutical companies, genetic companies, and with many major meat packers throughout his time in private industry and academia. His research has focused generally on topics of meat quality, such as the improvement in tenderness when pork is cooked to 145 degrees, and determining changes in pork quality as pigs are marketed at increasingly heavier weights. Dr. Bowler, let's start our conversation. I understand you were recently honored by the American Meat Science Association. Congratulations on that. Tell, tell us exactly what the, the association was, was recognizing with that prestigious honor. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Andy. I'm, I'm really proud to actually be one of three awardees uh, this year for 2020. And so, I'd really like to th- uh, congratulate Dr. Gary Sullivan from University of Nebraska-Lincoln and Dr. Travis O'Quinn from Kansas State University. Um, both of those guys I consider to be uh, personal friends, fantastic colleagues, and great scientists. Um, and as I understand it, that award is as the, the, uh, defined as fostering the development of young AMSA members that have contributed to animal products industry. And so to be... Uh, recognized by a group of my peers as as working towards that mission is is really humbling and something i'm really proud of thank you for bringing that up yeah and and well deserved and well earned so with that that bit of context uh is is your giving some advice and and commentary on meat quality as we get into the heart of our conversation might help to have a little bit of background and tell us about yourself and how you got involved in the meat industry for me, I grew up in a, in a small town in southern Indiana, and agriculture wasn't the way uh, my family, you know, it wasn't their, their bread and butter necessarily, but we, I grew up on a small hobby farm, like several kids from, from southern Indiana. I was involved in 4-H and FFA and did the livestock judging things and, and all those kind of events. Um, and the, the logical progression as you're, you're growing up in southern Indiana with an interest in ag is to go to Purdue University. And had an opportunity there to, to take some classes, uh, one in particular with, with, with Dr. Forrest, um, was on the livestock judging team and really got exposed to the meat industry and, and different aspects of the meat industry pretty early on. Um, and then when I graduated, Tyson offered me a fantastic opportunity in quality assurance uh, to, to really explore those interests. And I really 
enjoyed what I was doing and, and was being challenged and all those kind of things. But it became evident to me pretty early on that uh, I wanted greater responsibility. I wanted greater understanding of the meat industry. Um, so I went back to grad school, uh, got a master's and PhD at the University of Illinois, um, then was fortunate enough to be on faculty at Ohio State. And then again, at the University of Illinois for a few years. Um, and then as, as, as life happens, sometimes um, had an opportunity, my wife got an opportunity to move us to the Kansas City area. And then uh, very fortunate to, to now have the opportunity at Topics North from USA. Speaking of Topics North and USA, one of the things when we were setting up this conversation, I thought it was interesting, uh, and I didn't know if this is usual or typical, but that a swine genetics company would have a meat scientist on staff. Is, is that a normal uh, thing, or, or is that um, unique to Topics? And, and along with that, what do you do? At topics. Yeah, so it's on the surface, it is just a little bit odd to have somebody employed that's kind of at the end of the supply chain by a company that typically people think focus on the beginning of the supply chain. But if you drill down just a little bit further, it, it really makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, Topics Norseman's typical customers are swine producers, um, but swine producers' customers market to, to pork packers, and pork packers market to retailers, and, and retailers market to consumers. And so really it's a, it's a, um, a full scale uh, vision on the part of Topics Norseman to, to really embrace the idea that their customers are in fact the entire supply chain rather than, than that tunnel vision perhaps of, of just focusing on their direct customers. And so for me, it's, it, it's, it's really um, an expression of, of them being fully interested in uh, providing pork that, that consumers desire and that, that meets the expectations of, of the end customer. I was talking with your your colleague, Darwin Tilstra, a few weeks back, and he, hearing you say that, it kind of makes sense after Darwin was giving me the history lesson of how uh, topics started. We were talking about like the TN Tempo line and, and some of the origins of those genetics with regard to, hey, we're producing meat here and this is what we're looking for. So how involved do you as kind of that perspective on the end product, if you will, get involved when we're planning new genetics traits. Is that something where you and the geneticists and the other folks involved in and uh, building these lines, talking about the needs of packers, retailers, and consumers? Maybe if you've got some examples of how you've been involved in those discussions. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head right there where I often talk about raising pigs but producing pork. And um, that's exactly what our geneticists are striving for is, is to raise pigs that, that perform on the farm just like we would expect that they're feed efficient, they grow fast, all those kind of things. Um, but at the same time, we need to perform them to perform in, in the, the packing facilities as well and to, to, to cut well and to eat well and to taste uh, like pork is expected. A great example of that is um, some of you may be familiar with TN70. She's our parent line female. Um, she's got quite the reputation for uh, excellent mothering ability and reproductive efficiency. Um, but I started to equate the TN70 as my ice cream sundae. And it's all of those maternal traits um, as being the ice cream, if you will. But we've got to remember that the female line is 50% of the genetic contribution to eating experience and meat quality as well. And so we've really started to work and understand uh, her meat quality traits, her eating experience traits, and her contribution on the back end of the supply chain. And so for me, she's become the cherry on the top of my ice cream sundae. 
and I want to kind of segue from talking about your your day-to-day role, but because of your background um, in, in the meat industry, both academia, but also working at the, the, the packing house, meat industries facing challenges, the kind of which maybe not seen for quite some time related to COVID-19. So maybe give us um, your your thoughts or insights. Where are we as an industry as we grapple with this pandemic and, and maybe coming out of some of the early um, supply chain disruptions that we saw? Yeah, and so whether whether we like it or not, COVID-19 has uh, certainly um, become a, a conversation piece and the pork industry is not immune to that. And the one thing that, that I would point out to consumers is that at this point in time, obviously the meat industry is a little bit different than what uh, we viewed in the past, but it's important to remember that the products that are being produced are just as safe as they've ever been. Um, all policies and procedures that were ever implemented to ensure food safety and all the benefits that, that we enjoy from our food are still in place. And so when you go to the grocery store, those products are just as safe as they've ever been. And so feel very comfortable in, in purchasing the products just as you always would have. As you mentioned, things are a little bit unconventional. And so sometimes when we go to the grocery store, uh, the products that we are normally accustomed to seeing as a staple may or may not be there. And so my second bit of advice then is, is to be creative. If you see something in the, in the meat case that you're not used to, to seeing, don't be afraid to pick it up and buy it. National Pork Board has got links on their website that provide some fantastic recipes. To, to learn how to cook some some products that you may not be comfortable with. So don't be afraid of trying something new. You know, that's a great tip. We we had that at our house this weekend. Uh, uh, we had um, pork loin chop, some center cut pork product on the, the, the menu. We tend to buy our groceries a week at a time. And when I got to the meat case, by golly, there's this lovely bone-in kind of loin roast, three, four pounds. And I said, you know, instead of buying these chops maybe i'll just put this whole roast on the smoker and slice those things table side i think that's going to be a lot of fun i mean that's what you're talking about right maybe doing something that and, and in some of these cases mom dad grandma and grandpa used to do it this way and we've gotten away from it as modern consumers maybe we've got the opportunity to to take a look back at cuts or uh styles of cooking we haven't done in a while that's exactly what i'm talking about example my wife and i when we when we got married one of the things that uh, was provided us was essentially a recipe book. Um, we had guests that provided us a recipe and we've had fun searching through those and finding things that um, we've forgotten about and pulling them out and serving them up. And some of them turned out pretty good and others we still need some practice. Yeah. And you know what? I think the practice is the fun part, right? I don't know um, about everybody listening, but I've very much enjoyed uh, the, the time to spend with the grill and the cooker and the smoker and uh, whatnot this summer. So when you're looking at product choice availability and some of those kind of things, the, the meat quality discussion is one that I, I think is interesting. As a guy who grew up in the beef cattle industry, you know, the quality grading system's pretty well known and used as a marketing tool by a lot of different brands. What, what's the consumer missing in terms of the meat quality conversation on pork? And what do we as an industry maybe need to think about how we talk about meat quality um, and are there opportunities there? Yeah, as an industry, it gets it's pretty easy. And that's because, um, you know, we need to focus on what consumers tell us that they want and what consumers are voting with their dollars that they want. Um, Where it gets more complicated, though, is is that we need to recognize that consumer preferences differ. 
Um, everybody has something that they, they slightly prefer over another. Color and marbling always comes to the forefront of the conversation. We talk about how those things uh, differ in, in, depending on consumer preferences. And so what I would encourage consumers then is if there's something that, that they prefer, don't be afraid to select that product. We've already had the discussion about safety. Um, and then from a consumer's perspective, um, the best thing that they can do to ensure a, a positive eating experience is to get themselves a meat thermometer and use it. You know, it wasn't too terribly long ago, less than a decade, um, FSIS uh, changed their cooking recommendations on whole muscle cuts. And when we talk about whole muscle cuts, it's important we're talking about pork chops and roasts and those type of things, not brats. But when they're cooking whole muscle cuts, um, that it's, it's safe to cook those products to 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Previous recommendations were 160, and they, they changed those a little bit simply for the fact is that will in, improve eating experience, no doubt about it, and it doesn't compromise safety at all. I remember the first time I was cooking uh, some nice, big, thick chops. I think maybe these were porterhouse, uh, porterhouse of pork type chops, and it was... Uh, it was an interesting experience. I'd cooked it like a steak, I guess, was the line I heard used. And uh, my guest cut into it and said, oh, I'm so sorry. This is underdone. And I looked back and said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and, and it was an interesting educational experience because, you know, many of us grew up in that that era. I guess, you know, a lot of us listening grew up in that era where you, you cooked it until it was done. And then you cooked it another 20 minutes and <laughs> then you served it. You know, it's a different time. And, and fortunately, we're able to enjoy a pretty great product with those changes. That's exactly right. And, and you're right. I grew up in a household. It was the same way. We cooked it until it was good for a hockey puck and maybe not dinner, but that's the way it was. And I think it's interesting that, that consumers are so comfortable seeing a, a warm pink center on their steak. And the biochemistry with pork and beef is exactly the same. We've changed the way that we raise pigs. We now raise them inside where we can control their diets. And it's, it's all of those things where we've gotten better at, as pork producers at delivering a, a safe product. And so now we can enjoy them um, cooked to, to a more appropriate degree of doneness and, and really improve the eating experience. Do you think the the message is getting through to consumers on that or is there still work to do? What Maybe I'll wrap this up into a bigger question with, uh, you know, how we as an industry are communicating with our customers on things like what you were talking about earlier with product availability and choice and being adventurous with also the how to cook and how to get the best out of it. I mean, is that, is that message getting there? Or is there more work that we need to do yet to really um, open up the potential for, for well, I, product out I, there? I think the answer to that question is both. The message is certainly getting out there again, national pork board and some of the state pork associations, national pork producers council have really worked diligently to get that message out there and it's starting to be received. Um, but there's always more education, uh, always um, continuing to, to, to push that message is important. Um, and so I, I think the answer is both. When you look at, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, I guess, for your, because I, I know you were grilling over the weekend, as, uh, as a lot of us were, the weather was just about perfect for it here in central Ohio. When, when you're out at the supermarket, what are some of your favorite cuts that uh, you're throwing on the old Weber uh, right now or things that um, you would advise others to, to uh, maybe add to the grocery basket this week? Well, there, there's so many things, like you said, it, it's hard to go wrong with a good broth. Um, and I know it, it finds its way on our table usually at least once a week. Um, uh, so brats are absolutely delicious center cut pork chops. Um, I'm a big fan of buying a whole tenderloin roast if you can get them because you can get them 
flavored, marinated in a lot of different ways. So any of those types of things. And then if you're fortunate enough to find a pork brisket, man, it's really, really difficult to, to argue with a, with a brisket. And then if we can make it a pork brisket, all the better. Okay. Now we got to talk about that a minute and only because you've tripped a personal trigger of mine. So I, I um, smoked a, a beef brisket for uh, our immediate neighbors. We've kind of expanded our bubble to our immediate neighbors here as we move into the next phase of COVID quarantine and so on. And, and uh, that's an adventure. I've never smoked a pork brisket. Tell me more about this adventure. So if, if a lot of us have maybe had beef brisket, educate us about the joys of pork brisket, because this, this I think may be new for some of us. Well, so a pork brisket, it, it, it's, it's not terribly common, but for those of us that are fortunate enough to have um, access to either a local butcher or have our own animals processed, uh, the normal separation between a shoulder and the pork loin is between the second and third rib. Um, most of the time, um, if you're making a pork brisket, we'll separate, make that separation between the fourth and the fifth rib. It makes the, the shoulder portion a little bit longer. Um, and if you do that, whenever you separate what is uh, typically known as the, the Boston butt and the picnic shoulder, it actually provides what's kind of the equivalent of a beef brisket. Um, and it's, it's really delicious for all the reasons of a beef brisket. The one advantage maybe is, you know, a beef brisket's going to weigh 15 to 18 pounds, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. Um, and so for a, for a smaller family, that can be a, a pretty sizable portion where a, a pork brisket is, is maybe a little more appropriately sized for a, for a smaller family for a, maybe only a single meal rather than kind of dragging on for leftovers. But it, it, it performs and you can cook it exactly like a beef brisket, low and slow and really delicious. You talked about, you know, cutting this differently, how we separate the picnic and the butt and, and so on. Are, are you and your colleagues, and I'm thinking some of your university colleagues who are, who are, uh, or colleagues out in product development at, at some of these packers, are we, are we tinkering with new cuts, different cuts, or way to, way to cut this carcass, carcass differently to extract more or additional or different value than what we've typically done, or, or are we still at a relative uh, level of homeostasis that this is the way you cut up a hog? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Actually, in my academic life, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. If, if we look at the, the slope of the line on carcass weights for beef and pork, they're trending up and they have been for a while. And all projections are that, that carcass weights are going to continue to get heavier. And because of that, as, as we, we do that, if you think about some of the muscles in a shoulder um, in, in a beef carcass, we found that those muscles are actually really, really tender. But from a portion size and a pork, they've always been just a little bit small um, to, to actually justify the effort to, to extract those muscles. And as pork carcasses get heavier, um, some of the data would indicate that pork quality actually improves. There's some evidence that maybe pork chops become more tender and absolutely those muscles get larger such that now there's some, some benefit or at least some justification in terms of portion size to go get some of those uh, more tender muscles that we've identified in a beef carcass and try to justify them in a pork carcass. And so the beef, uh, excuse me, the pork industry is always evolving. And so absolutely there are folks that are taking a good hard look at, at what we can do and create in terms of uh, alternative fabrication methods in a pork carcass. Along those same lines, you're talking about the trend toward larger carcass weights, heavier carcass weights rather. 
I was also thinking about something you said earlier in terms of, okay, we've, we've evolved um, our understanding of cooking temperature on whole muscle cuts. Uh, I also see maybe consumers have led a shift in how we look at leanness as a trade over the past, say, 20 years. I mean, we go back 20 years, we were talking about some relatively lean hogs. It feels like we've shifted back toward having the uh, the reality of fat equals flavor or whatnot. Is that is that accurate? And where do you think that pendulum swings? Um, are, are we at a pretty reasonable balance point now, or are we swinging toward fatter hogs as we get heavier hogs? Well, I think, I think again, you, you've identified it. It's an appropriate balance. And if you start sorting out the value of a pork carcass and where that value lies, it's in the belly. And so when we get carcasses extremely lean and we think about how fat is deposited in a pork carcass, um, we measure fat generally over the, the loin. Um, and if they're lean at the loin, then they're going to be pretty lean in the belly. Um, if they get too lean in the belly, then that compromises bacon quality. We know that consumers love bacon, and, and I do, and I'm sure you do as well. And so there's a balance there uh, where we've got to appropriately raise these pigs to grow fast and be efficient and, and, um, and those types of things. But we also have to understand that there's value in fat and there's value um, in trim and there's absolutely value in the belly in terms of making bacon. We've got to produce a product that consumers desire. Consumers tell us that they desire bacon. And so we've got to get a, a nice balance of, of lean and fat in those pigs. And as we do that, I mean, I'm just, you know, maybe positing here. Um, as we do that, aren't we improving the, the quality, if you will? And I'm thinking about this back to that conversation of marbling and so on. Are we improving the quality of those whole muscle cuts as well? Well, again, it goes back to consumer preference. And so there's a there's a certain group of consumers that tell us that they want a, a whole muscle cut that's very highly marbled, and we need to be able to provide them the product that they desire. The other side of that, though, is there's a, a group of consumers that, that don't want pork to have much marbling, and we need to, to be able to provide product for them as well. And so for us and for, for our mission is we're trying to ensure that all products are tender, all products are juicy and flavorful, and then let consumers sort out their preference on color and marbling. Are we giving consumers enough information? Are we giving them the right tools as an industry to to adequately evaluate those? In other words, if I'm random consumer um, in Columbus, Ohio, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, or Kansas City, and I walk into my local grocery store, can I walk up to the meat case and and really have all of the information I might need to make that determination or if i'm just looking and saying oh that 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 pack looks pretty i'll take that so it goes back to to two different things in terms of visual appeal that's absolutely important because we know that consumers uh, make purchasing decisions with their eyes um, and so what we need to do is ensure that we're providing a safe product um, in terms of food safety we're doing that we've talked about that already um, but if you look on the stickers of most of those labels there should be uh, cooking instructions, there should be degree of doneness suggestions, safe handling practices, all of those type of things. But in addition to that, uh, several of your retail stores will have customer service stations where you can feel free to ask those folks how to prepare the products or otherwise, as I mentioned previously, go on the internet, there's there's tons and tons of websites and recipes uh, to, to sort out and find something new and, and try a different way of preparing your products. It's amazing to me, uh, just the wealth of information on how to cook and what to cook and YouTube videos to show you how to do it if you're not comfortable with it. I mean, there really is very little barrier to entry toward even some things that could feel pretty intimidating. 
uh, when I was cooking that brisket, man, <laughs> it was hours and hours of reading and watching videos and so on because it was super intimidating. But I want to get, I want to get before we wrap up here, your perspective on one other consumer-related issue. So plant-based proteins have have gotten a bit of a toehold in the meat department at at uh, most retail establishments. So what do you what do you think's the long-term prognosis for that new protein category? Um, concerns about cost, health, acceptance from consumers, and then what do you think we as as a meat industry uh, need to do in in how we handle our new neighbors in the protein case? Yeah, so that, that's been a fun topic, and it's one I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about. Um, and it goes back to the to the fact that consumers have choices, and we have a lot of choices in a lot of different things, not just our food selection. Um, and so, plant based. Uh, alternative proteins provide an additional choice. And for me, I, I think it reemphasizes the need for a company like Topics Norseman to have um, an understanding of, of meat quality, because we need to, to ensure that we're delivering pork products that consumers desire and that consumers seek out at the case. Um, and if I'm doing my job effectively, we'll continue to provide those type of products. And as an industry, if, if we fail on that, then consumers have another choice that they can either go to, to plant-based proteins or they can select beef, pol uh, poultry, or something else. And so I think it really emphasizes the need to focus on pork quality and, and eating experience. Dr. Bowler, we have talked through a number of different topics from uh, you know, what you do for a living at Topics Norrison on through to plant-based protein. So as we wrap up our time together, what, what are some final thoughts you want to share with our, our listeners in the Feedstuffs audience? Yeah, so first of all, just thank you again for the opportunity to be here and have the conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. In, in addition to that, just saying that, you know, times are a little bit unique right now. And so whatever your bubble is, don't be afraid to go to the grocery store, find some products, some meat products, pork, whatever um, that you enjoy. Take those home, use a meat thermometer, cook them appropriately and enjoy time with your family and friends. I love it. Great advice, Dr. Bowler. Congratulations again on your honor with AMSA and thank you for joining us on the Feedstuffs in Focus podcast. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Topics Norsven. Topics Norsven has made natural selection for robustness a priority in the breeding programs for its TN Tempo Terminal Sire and TN70 Parent Female. Selecting for specific natural resistance to PERS as well as overall robustness characteristics to further enhance the production performance of TN Tempo and TN70 offspring. The robustness advantage of the TN Tempo has been verified by independent research. Their customers report improved piglet vitality, uniformity, and barn throughput as well. Learn more about TN Tempo at tntempo.com. And for the latest reporting on COVID-19 and other meat production, marketing, and consumption-related stories, subscribe to the Feedstuffs Daily and Feedstuffs Swine e-newsletters. You can sign up at our website, feedstuffs.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. Thanks for joining us today. And if you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast via your favorite platforms like Apple or Google, or you could check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.